Father in heaven, we're grateful for this privilege that we have to meet together here at camp meeting. We have the promise that when we gather here for camp meeting, that Lord Jesus, you are here to meet with us. And we pray that you would give us of the Holy Spirit today. We need wisdom from heaven. We need strength and courage. We need to be braced for whatever lies ahead, whether it's the challenges in our own personal hearts and lives or whether it's the challenges facing the church today. In either case, we believe that you are on the throne and we can trust you to see us safely into port. So please, Lord, guide this ship and bless this meeting as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me give you a little introduction to the series. Um, today, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is at a crossroads, and I believe that we're living in what I would refer to as a defining moment in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I believe that we've come face to face with an issue that is destined to determine the future of the church. What is that issue? Hermeneutics, our method of understanding the Bible. Is the Bible fully authoritative, or do we need to look beyond the Bible for views of what's right and wrong because parts of it were negatively influenced by the culture of the writers? This is a huge issue facing the church, and that's what I'm going to talk about today, the future of Adventist biblical interpretation. Now, tomorrow... Uh, we're going to talk about an equally important topic. Many have adopted an evangelical view of the gospel that has actually hindered our understanding and our preaching of the full message of righteousness by faith. Maybe it was unintentional, but many have divorced sanctification from justification, and in so doing, what has happened as we have, is we have basically considered certain vital Adventist teachings, such as the cleansing of the sanctuary and the judgment, as being incompatible with the gospel. So tomorrow we're going to talk about the future of the everlasting gospel in the Adventist church. Then, in some areas of the church, Adventist views of what the Bible teaches on health and Christian standards have been re-examined in the light of changing Society, what society believes is right and wrong. You know, society has a lot of strength because you see something enough on the news, you hear it with people that you work with, it begins to kind of have this effect. And it's had that effect on the church. As the culture goes, the church generally follows. And you need to look no further than the current wave of support for gay and transgender lifestyles for an example of this. It's not uh, something that the church is immune to, and it's certainly something that is beginning to see cracks in the armor in the Seventh-day Adventist church. So have we been too literal in our reading of the Bible? Too narrow-minded? Not progressive enough in our views of what constitutes a biblical lifestyle? Wednesday, we'll look at the future of Adventist lifestyle. Now, many people today are embarrassed to hear the Seventh-day Adventist church referred to as the remnant church. They wonder what makes us think we're so special. But maybe many have never seen the powerful biblical evidence of the distinct end-time mission and message of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I think that many people in the Seventh-day Adventist church who hold that view simply have not seen 
what they need to see. Thursday, we're going to talk about the future of Adventist identity. And then for many, Adventist evangelism needs a total overhaul. They believe what we did in the past doesn't work anymore. It doesn't reach young people. It's too expensive. It's centered on beasts instead of being centered on Christ. It arrogantly condemns other faith groups. We need to start being inclusive. We need to start helping our neighbors. We need to start standing up for social causes. Is this the future of Adventist evangelism? Has our evangelism been self-centered instead of Christ-centered? Have our typical evangelistic meeting formats lost their relevance in today's age? On Friday, we're going to talk about the future of Adventist evangelism. Are you provoked? Yes. Well, all I need is one, so good. I'm going to go ahead and get started. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about the future of Adventist biblical interpretation. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that we're at a defining moment in the history of the church. We've come face to face with this issue that's destined to determine the future of Adventism. And some of you probably thought that I was going to mention when I said the issue, women's ordination. Some of you probably thought I was going to talk about LGBT. Perhaps others thought I was going to speak about the doctrine of the Godhead or about justification by faith. And all of you would have been partially right. But underneath each of these issues, our faithfulness to God at the end of time will be determined by how we interpret the Bible. We call the study of how we interpret literary texts, such as the Bible, or how we understand its meaning, we call this hermeneutics. Now, if you want to understand how Hebrew or Greek scholars view this, you've come to the wrong seminar. I'm friends with a few of those guys at the GC, but their knowledge has not rubbed off on me just yet. I'm still holding off that maybe osmosis will happen, and I'll just become this incredible scholar from just hanging around them. But the good news is this. The Bible wasn't primarily written for scholars. The Bible was written for common folks like you and me. And the other good news, or it could be bad news, you know, depending on how you look at it, is that the number one rule for understanding the Bible is being willing to follow it. And anyone who loves Jesus can do that. Amen. But let's not kid ourselves. How we interpret the Bible is a vital factor that's going to determine much about the future of the church. So today I'm going to do something. I'm going to give a basic study in how to interpret the Bible, which admittedly might sound kind of boring. But so that you see how important of an issue it is, I'm then going to show you how you apply that, the implications of how we interpret the Bible, on a few controversial topics. And that won't be boring at all. So are you ready? Let's start with the groundwork with a little study on how to interpret the Bible. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer to start. Back when I was serving as a local church pastor, I would do a series on this that would be maybe four or five sermons. And I'm not going to be able to do that. Uh, it won't be comprehensive. It won't be overly technical, which probably suits you just fine. 
And just be aware that this is going to be a, a basic summary of the fundamental principles here. So don't tag me out if I don't cover all the bases, okay? All right, let's talk about some principles. Do you have your Bibles? 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. You'll need to go to the T books just before Hebrews. The five books that start with the letter T, and you'll find 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. And uh, why don't I uh, give you the right chapter, or the right book? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. You were thinking, that's a beautiful verse. I've never seen it brought out like that before. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, doing what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to divide the truth, to interpret the Bible, okay? And this is what we need to understand. The apostle uh, Peter wrote about the apostle Paul and said he wrote some things that are hard to understand and there are people who have twisted it to their own destruction. So people have actually, with the Bible, found their way down the road to destruction. It's quite possible. It's not enough to be in the Bible. You have to rightly interpret the Bible. So this is critical to our salvation and to our uh, mission as a church. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you go past Hebrews to your right, and past, uh, you know, James and 1 Peter, you're going to come to 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 19. The apostle writes, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any what? private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, the Bible is not of private interpretation. There's not only certain people who can understand it, and it's something that uh, it never came by an individual with, you know, brilliant intelligence. This is something that only can come by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired by the Spirit of God, and therefore it only can be understood by the revelation of the Spirit of God. Now notice it says that holy men wrote, uh, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's important to note that when the Bible was given, the words were not dictated to the writer, but God moved upon the writer to write in their own language. And that's why Ellen White says that God's, you know, own style of writing or his grammar or whatever is not on trial in the Bible. Because this is the, the combination of divine and human elements. And so God moves upon the human, and, and with that divine influence, that person writes in their own expression. And yet, because God is overseeing the whole process, and is the one who moves on them with what uh, the, the concept is that they're to portray, it's the Word of God. So this is just the idea of inspiration. 
God, it's thought inspiration, not verbal inspiration. The Bible was not dictated, okay? That's important for us to understand that when we're trying to understand the Bible because we'll recognize that there are differences in certain places, and those should not cause any of us to stumble. Now, I don't even need to turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, because you know what that says, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then when you go to verse 17, it says that the man of God may be perfect or, yeah, complete. complete. Okay? So it has every, the Bible has everything a person needs to become in the full maturity of Christ. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What this means is that the entire Bible is inspired by God. This is very important when it comes to biblical interpretation. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible does not contain the Word of God merely. You see, and we'll talk about other methods of interpretation in a moment, but you can't say simply the Bible contains the Word of God because then you're saying that there's some things in the Bible that may be merely human opinion, and you have to find that out in the Bible. No, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You recall that when Jesus uh, walked up to those discouraged disciples who were just uh, beside themselves because the one they thought was the Messiah had been crucified, and now there were reports that he had risen from the dead, Jesus came up next to them and he said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in what? In all that the prophets have spoken. You believed in part of what the prophets had spoken about the Messiah, who the Messiah was. You believed, and rightly so, that one day he would be a mighty king. But you did not believe in the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53. You did not believe in all that the prophets had spoken. So we have to understand one of the most important things and one of the biggest blessings for us is that we don't have to figure out what in the Bible is inspired and what is not what we can trust and what we can't. It's all inspired. And that way you can do what you need to do, which is, as Isaiah 28.10 says, precept upon precept. Line upon line, precept upon precept. What you're talking about here is that when you understand that the whole Bible is inspired, then to understand the Bible, you read a passage, and as you are wrestling with it, you go to everywhere else in the Bible you can find that shed light on the same topic. And you stack them up, precept upon precept, and they all shed a little bit more light, and they begin to limit and narrow what that text must mean. It, it, it makes it easier and easier and easier to see what it must mean because all the Scripture has to be in harmony. And that's how you interpret the Bible, by comparing the, the weight of Scripture and going with the conclusion that bears the weight of Scripture. The other thing that's very important, let's look at this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13. Have you found it? The Bible says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, what this is doing is adding to this concept that you compare Scripture with Scripture and let Scripture, hear me now, interpret Scripture. Um, I love how you know many evangelicals, like you give a Revelation seminar and you talk about certain passages in there that are clearly symbolic like uh, where it talks about the river Euphrates. 
And they're expecting some big thing to happen over in the Middle East uh, where you know you, there's little, literal armies that are going to cross the river and, and what have you, instead of recognizing that Euphrates ran through Babylon, and right there in Revelation it tells us that the waters on which Babylon sits are many peoples, nations, tongues, right? So the text itself, right there in the body of the very book of Revelation, you can know that that river is not literal. I mean, it tells you. So the point is, you. and let me just say something else. Sometimes we read words in Scripture that have a, a certain meaning to us right now, but the first thing we do, and, and that's okay, but before we conclude anything about that, we need to make sure that we've looked to see if the Bible itself gives a definition of that word. Because that might give a definition that's different than the definition that we have in our head right now. Uh, case in point, uh, evangelicals often teach the, the doctrine of eternally burning hellfire. Well, when they read this about this eternal fire, I mean, they immediately say, what, what more do we need to hear, right? But they are using their definition instead of the Bible definition. Before you use your own definition, make sure you look to see if the Bible gives a definition. And you can easily go to Jude and the writings of Peter, and you can discover that it describes eternal fire as a fire that brought Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. So now you understand, and it's not still burning. So there's something, oh, this is talking about results and consequences. You learn what the Bible is saying by reading what, how the Bible defines what it says. And you cannot put a current construction from the dictionary, I'm not saying that's not helpful, but you cannot put that and have that supersede a definition that's given in the Bible itself. I'll give, me, I'll give you another example of this. The Bible does not say love is God. The Bible says God is love. What many people do is they put their construction in their mind of their definition of what love is, and that's what Jesus is like. No, Jesus is like what the Bible says He is like. And that may or may not be your conception of love. There may be more mercy in it than what your definition is. Or there may be more justice in it than what your definition is. But ultimately, the Bible defines for us what love is because the Bible is the revelation of who God is. And now we know, understand what true love is. Now let me give you probably the most important one. This is in the book of John, chapter 7. So look at John, chapter 7 with me, and verse 17. John 7 and verse 17. Jesus is being challenged as He frequently is in the midst of His teaching. And he stands up and says, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Now I'm in John 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, that means if anyone is willing to do his will, but wants to do his will, is putting their will on the side of God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, you'll know whether this is divine or just human opinion. How will you know? If you want to follow God and you are willing to follow the truth of God wherever it leads you, then you'll know the truth. That's a beautiful thought. You know, 
There's a lot of people who wrestle. They say, I'm not the most intellectual person in the world. I'm worried about getting deceived at the end. You know, some of the deceptions are so tricky, and I seem to always fall for everything. Look, if you have a deep personal relationship with God, and you read your Bible, and you pray, when that deception comes, something's going to be not quite right. You understand what I'm saying? Because you want to follow God. You want to do His will. You've known what it means to wrestle with self and to surrender to God. And you've built an experience with God that is going to help you beyond what maybe your uh, perceived intellectual uh, weaknesses might be. The heart of, of deception and avoiding deception is having your heart right with God. So if you're willing to do His will, you'll know whether it's truth or error. However, we understand in the last days, of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that, uh, that many will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will turn them away from the truth to fables. Okay, so this is a very real problem for every one of us to face. We all have this heart that is You remember what Jeremiah calls it, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, right? So we need to be honest with God, honest with ourselves. That's the number one rule of biblical interpretation, being honest with God. Now let me give you some more good news. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. Have you found it? All right. Psalm 119, verse 130. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to really smart people. What's it say? To the simple. Can I get an amen with that? I love it. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding. Do you know that that the purpose of hermeneutics, of how we interpret the Bible, is so that we will understand the meaning of the text? And this verse says that even the simple, the most simple, can understand the meaning of the Bible. That's a wonderful thing. Let me give you a few Ellen White quotes on this. Can I do that? This is from Child Guidance, page 513. The book, she's referring to the Bible, was not designed for scholars alone. It was written in a plain, simple style to meet the understanding of the common people. You know, she also says the same thing about Jesus' teaching. In a direct, plain way, he spoke to the people. They didn't need a dictionary, she said. Which I really like. Now, I'll give you another one. This one is incredible. Mark it down. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 331. The Bible, with its precious gems of truth, was not written for the scholar alone. On the contrary, it was designed for the common people. And the interpretation given by the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. The great truths necessary for salvation are made as clear as the noonday, and none will mistake and lose their way except those who follow their own judgment instead of the plainly revealed will of God. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, it's telling us right there that The interpretation of the common people, when aided by the Holy Spirit, 
accords best with the truth as it is in Jesus. Now this concept of full access to the Scriptures by all believers, this was very important in the Protestant Reformation. You may recall that the papal system taught that only the clergy were equipped to be able to rightly interpret and to rightly express the meaning of the sacred scriptures. But you remember what happened in the Protestant Reformation. They started translating the text into the language of the common people. And guess what happened? They kind of reversed all the errors. They're like, what are you people doing up there in your ivory tower? This is clear. And suddenly the Protestant Reformation started overturning errors and exalting truth again. This is an incredible thought. How did the educated priests miss it and the common people get it right? Because ultimately, being a scholar is not a cure for the carnal heart. And no matter how uneducated or educated a person is, the temptations of the carnal heart will always push for what I call the whatever-it-takes method of interpreting the Bible to avoid following the truth. You see, it really has to do with where our heart is, this whole Bible interpretation business. Another one, uh, Great Controversy, page 599. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. And then she says, if men would take, but would but take the Bible as it reads... If there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. So you catching this? The obvious meaning? Take it as it reads, unless a figure or symbol is being employed. This is, this is pretty commonsensical, isn't it? That's why common people do pretty well when their hearts are right with God. Now, Ellen White endorsed uh, a certain individual's rules of interpretation. Does anybody know who it was that she strongly endorsed their rules of Bible interpretation? William Miller. Father Miller's rules of interpretation. You can read about this, in, if you want to write this down, in Review and Herald, uh, the uh, November 25, 1884 edition, on, in paragraph 24. I'm not going to go through it all. Uh, 1884. But William Miller essentially uh, expressed the principles that we just went through in a simple bullet point style. You also should know that in 1986 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, that the church at an annual council, which is a meeting of the General Conference Executive Committee that happens between uh, the five-year General Conference full sessions, but there was one that happened in Rio in 1986, and at that particular conference, they voted to approve a statement, an official statement, on how to interpret the Bible. It's called the Methods of Bible Study document. You can actually go on the General Conference website, and you can read this document for yourself. Basically, Miller's Rules, the Rio document, it all comes down to some simple points. The whole Bible is inspired. You gather the weight of evidence on any given topic. You compare Scripture with Scripture, allowing the Bible to be its own interpreter. You must be willing to follow the truth wherever it leads you. 
and you seek to grasp the most obvious meaning as it reads unless symbolic language is being used. That's it. That's the Seventh-day Adventist method of biblical interpretation. Some people sometimes will refer to the historical grammatical, uh, which, is, which is a scholarly term that is uh, pretty much equivalent to this method of interpretation that we're talking about right now. Now let me give you another couple of eight-cylinder words. Can I do that? One of them is the word exegesis. Have you ever heard anybody say, let's exegete that text? That's what scholars say. And what that means is let's read the text and let's draw out of the text the original meaning of the author. Okay, so the first goal of interpretation is to determine the meaning of the text for its original writer and its recipients. Okay, that's the first place you start with interpreting. Ellen White had some things to say about this. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, she says, uh, page 1. Understanding what the words of Jesus meant to those who heard them, we may discern in them a new vividness and beauty and may also gather for ourselves their deeper lesson. So Ellen White endorsed this idea. It's good to understand what, what he said meant to the people who heard it. What was the intent to, that, to those people? In another place, she says, an understanding of the customs of those who lived in Bible times, of the location and time of events, is practical knowledge. It aids in making clear the figures of the Bible and bringing out the force of Christ's lessons. So, understanding the historical context of what was happening when the Bible was written is important when interpreting the meaning of the text. More than 1,900 years from New Testament times have now passed since those writers wrote what they did, and the world is a very different place. Back then, the biblical world consisted primarily of landowners and tenants and things. It was a different place. So there are customs and practices in the Bible that are foreign to us, and the temptation is to sometimes take what is written and impose our cultural understanding onto the meaning of the text. Okay, So exegesis is the process of drawing out the original meaning from a text. But there's a bad word called eisegesis. Exegesis, good. Eisegesis, bad. Eisegesis is when a reader imposes his or her understanding onto the text. They're not drawing out what the text says, but they're imposing, and let me tell you that the natural, totally natural habit of any human being is eisegesis. Okay, let me give you a, an example. As somebody who has, you know, had the privilege of giving some Bible studies to people, you always, you know, you go through the, the, the questions in a Bible study and you ask a question, you say, why don't you read the text and let's see what it says. And they read the text and then they look up at you. You know, you're the one leading the study. They look up at you. And you say, well, let's see, how did, how did that text answer this question? And you read the question again. And they begin to answer. But how do they answer? They say whatever they thought before they ever read the text. This is what usually happens. In other words, they already feel like they knew the answer. So instead of like drawing from the text what it said to answer the question, they're just answering how they thought. This happens all the time when you're reading something that somebody is new to somebody, like the state of the dead, let's say. And you're going through and you read the text. And how did that answer the text? And they say it, and they're still saying what they always believed. And you stop, and you have to stop them. And you say, now what does the text say? So this is how I train people to give Bible studies. This is the most important phrase in any Bible study you give. 
what does the text say, right? Because you're wanting them to learn from the Bible, not from you. So you say, what does the text say? And what you're actually doing is teaching them also how to understand the meaning of the Bible. Don't read into the Bible what you already think about that topic, but, un but stop and listen to what the Bible is saying about that topic. That's exegesis versus eisegesis. Ellen White says it this way. If you search the scriptures to vindicate your own opinions, what's that? Eisegesis. You will never reach the truth. Search in order to learn what the Lord says. What's that? Exegesis. You guys are quick learners. Man, this is, this is easy. Now, while considering the you know, historical context that we've been talking about, it is very important. Historical and cultural understandings are not always consistent. Have you ever heard of revisionist history? You know, sometimes you'll get people and they'll interpret the Bible and they'll, they'll reconstruct what was happening historically at the time that it was written, and you're like, uh, are you sure? Like, how do you know that? Well, you can draw from it. But somebody else has reconstructed the history quite differently and say that there were different circumstances happening at that time. This is why, when you're considering the cultural and historical context, whatever conclusion you draw about what the Bible text is saying should not violate the obvious reading of the text. And this is what some people do. They will take the, 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 the Bible text says something that they don't really want it to say, and so they take and build up their cultural understanding, and when they're done, the Bible text doesn't mean anything remotely similar to what it looked like it said. But they've convinced you because they have all this knowledge about history. You understand? If it violates the clear reading, then that should be a red flag to you. So this brings us to false methods of interpretation. Can I give you some false methods? I feel like there should be a clock in here because, oh, there it is. Well, you shouldn't have pointed that out to me. What time? Is it like 3.30 that I have till? Yeah, 3.30. Because isn't... Does Pastor Howard follow me in here? Four o'clock. Four o'clock. <laughs> anyway. Marshall does? Does Marshall follow me? No, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's Pastor Howard. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine too. Okay, false methods of interpretation. Are you ready? Have you ever heard of historical critical or higher criticism? I'm going to introduce this concept to you. This is what I mentioned earlier when I said the idea that the Bible contains the Word of God rather than actually being the Word of God. In other words, not everything is inspired in the Bible according to the historical critical scholar. Some scripture, they would believe, is negatively influenced by culture or by the writer's human bias as impacted by his or her culture. I guess it would be his. Divine truth is in the Bible, according to this method, but you have to dig through the weeds in order to find it. So here's the point. Who determines what is culturally influenced in the Bible and what is divine truth? The reader. So this ultimately places the reader in the position of authority as to what is divine and what is not. The final authority lies with the reader in the historical critical method. 
this is not how it is supposed to work. This is what leads to everyone doing what is right in their own mind or their own sight. Now, Jesus, we learn in Luke 24, verse 45, did something fascinating. It says, and he opened their understanding, this is to his disciples, right before the ascension in Acts chapter 1, you have the last chapter of Luke. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. You see, the reader must adapt to the Bible. The Bible does not adapt to the reader. Do you understand that? Have you ever read something that you needed to adapt to? Not just your habits and lifestyle, but your thinking? Like, like I don't understand why when Uzzah held out his hand to steady the ark, he received that swift judgment from God. That doesn't feel like love to me. Well, guess what? Love is not going to adapt to you. You must adapt to the Bible because the Bible is truth. The Bible is inspired by God and God is love. And with just a little understanding, you could learn that God was actually being merciful. But you don't know all the things that God knows. So just the point is, there are going to be things that we read in the Bible that, that are confusing to us. They don't match our idea of what should be right. But we do not, because of that, say, oh, the culture must have created that confusion. No, we don't make the Bible adapt to our idea. We must adapt to the Bible. And brothers and sisters, when you do that, you come to an understanding of the truth. And let me tell you something. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You will have a deeper, oh, wonderful experience with God as you realize the beauty of the truth that you didn't see before. That's the wonderful experience when you let the Bible be the authority. Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, page 474, To many the Bible is as a lamp without oil, because they have turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that bring misunderstanding and confusion. The work of higher criticism in dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. So when we read the Bible with a right hermeneutic, we ask the faith question. The faith question when you read the Bible is, what does it mean? Historical criticism asks the doubter question, which is, is it true? You do not have to ask, brothers and sisters, is it true? You don't have to ask, oh, was the Apostle Paul, like, corrupted by the culture of his day, and so that, what he wrote right there is not really, like, we shouldn't really go by that? You following me? You don't have to ask that question. That's the historical critical question. That's the doubter's question. But the one who believes in the full authority of the Bible, he might be confused by what the Apostle Paul wrote, but he doesn't ask, is it true? He asks, what does it mean? You know, when you start with that, then you can begin to explore and God will open up to your mind what is truth. So that's a little about historical critical. Now let me give you a form of higher criticism, which is allegorical method of interpretation. 
Now, this method assumes that most or even all of Scripture has symbolic meaning. Okay? Allegorizing ignores the obvious literal meaning of the text, or even if it doesn't ignore it, it considers it of less value than the more profound, deeper meaning behind the text. Allegorizing is searching for a, a hidden or secret meaning in the text, remote from and unrelated to the, the reality of the more obvious meaning that's right there. So in this approach, the literal is superficial. The allegorical is true meaning. It's the true meaning. So an example of this would be the two denarii that the Good Samaritan gave the innkeeper symbolized baptism and the Lord's Supper. Or when I was in the Detroit area pastoring, there was a strong movement toward uh, Branch Davidians. Uh, and we, had, we lost some people in our church to a new wave of Branch Davidian. These are people who do not believe in David Koresh. They think he was a messenger of the devil, but they still believe in the foundational points that had been passed along by Branch Davidian belief before David Koresh came along. And one of the things they believe is that the four horns on the altar represent the four members of the Godhead. That's what I said. Who told them that the four horns on the altar had some symbolic meaning? You know, just because there are lots of parts to the sanctuary, for instance, doesn't mean that you need to rack your brain over the spiritual significance of the tabernacle tent stakes. Amen. You understand? Yeah. If the Bible shares it with us, then good. But that doesn't mean that there's a deeper meaning in everything, and you get to speculate as to what that is. Yeah. And this happens within Adventism. Uh, you know, somebody who was promoting good health talked about the sanctuary as the body. So the most holy place, that's like the brain because the law is written on our mind. The altar of incense, the smoke of the incense represents prayer. And this represents the heart because God wants to have a heart-to-heart -heart with us through prayer. Candlestick, well, that takes oxygen to burn. So that's like the lungs. The table of showbread, that's the word of God. And the word of God protects us. So the 12 pieces of bread are like the 12 ribs that protect our lungs. The laver is like the kidney because it cleanses the body just like the water cleanses the body. The altar of sacrifice, that's like the digestive system because only clean animals are allowed there and we're only permitted to eat clean animals. Now this may be used to teach something right and good, like healthy living. But there's a danger in using wrong methods of Bible interpretation in order to come to right conclusions. Because somewhere down the line, it may not lead to right conclusions. Allegory is a form of eisegesis because it does not truly draw from the text but imposes on the text our understanding or some speculative view whether that understanding is right or wrong. Are you tracking with me? Now, allegory is not the same as typology or prophetic symbols, okay? Like when we hear, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb is a type of Christ. And we can clearly see that expressed in the Bible. The high priest, we see clearly expressed, was a type of Christ. Jonah, we even read, was a type of Christ. We learn about how the Day of Atonement was a type of the judgment. These are types, and the Bible uses those. But that's different from taking every literal thing you find and trying to create a symbolic uh, meaning to it. Now, another dangerous method is what people sometimes call the proof text method. Some people refer to it as a literalistic reading. What this truly is, is using an isolated text arbitrarily to prove somebody's point. Now, let me be clear about something. I need to clarify something. Because I hear a lot of people 
wrongly accusing people of using the proof text method. There are many Adventists I've heard who speak negatively about, for instance, our topical Bible study guides because they draw from texts all over the Bible to prove the truth on a particular topic. There is nothing wrong with using Bible texts to prove a point. Did you get that? That's not what we refer to as proof texting. That is sound Bible study. Proof texting is when you wrongly interpret a text by taking it out of its context to prove the point. In other words, you're using the text to, to, to prove a point that the text doesn't actually make. You understand that? So you can take a few words or a phrase out and make it mean something different than it really meant when the author wrote it. That is proof texting. Sure, like the man who wanted to know the will of God and so he prayed, closed his eyes, opened his Bible, put it down and said, Judas went out and hanged himself. He closed it, prayed, opened it, go and do likewise. He closed it, opened it, what you do, do quickly. You put them together and you can make a narrative out of it, right? But that narrative is totally different than what the actual text was talking about if you had taken it in its context. The problem with proof texting is that it fails to consider the historical context, it ignores the surrounding context, as well as the weight of inspired evidence, and it approaches texts very superficially. So you ready to talk about a few examples? Let me give you a few examples. How about creation versus theistic evolution? Do you know what theistic evolution is? That's the belief that God started it all, but he used evolutionary processes to do it. So when you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have to ask yourself the faith question. And what is that question? What does it mean? In what way did he create? Well, you go to the book of Mark, chapter 10 and verse 6 says that Adam and Eve were from the beginning of creation. That's just like it reads in Genesis. Not billions of years before or after it began, that's not when they came. They were at the beginning of creation, according to Scripture. So theistic evolution violates both the obvious meaning of the text and it violates the weight of inspired evidence. And this is not uncommon to people who think with, an, with a historical critical or allegorical view of the Bible. They do not trust that the Bible could be uh, accurate because of its miraculous claims. But Jesus did. And this is the beauty of somebody who believes in the entire inspiration of the Bible. Do you want to know if, you know, uh, the, the story of Jonah and the whale is true? Well, Jesus said it was. Right? You don't have to just wrestle, oh, I wonder if this... No. We have all these beautiful examples. Uh, Jesus... Uh, talked about Adam and Eve as the first married couple. He talked about Abel as the first prophet who was killed. He talked about Noah and the flood. He talked about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. He talked about Moses and the manna that fell from heaven and fed the Israelites in the wilderness. He talked about the experience of Lot and his wife. He talked about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. He talked about the miracles of Elijah and Jonah and the big fish. Jesus did not view these accounts as allegories or symbolic deeper messages, he took them as straightforward history. Amen. 
describing events that actually happened just as the Old Testament describes. And that's the beauty of when you understand that all of Scripture is inspired by God, you have so much that you can glean from to understand what the Bible is meaning. Jesus used these very accounts to teach his disciples that just like these things happen, the truth of his death and resurrection and ultimately his second coming were just as sure to happen. We can be sure. What about the doctrine that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell? Well, we read in, uh, let's look at a text. Psalm 13. Let's look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13 and verse 3. Uh, that's not the verse. That's not what I want. Yeah, it is. Yes. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. You read that text and you ask yourself the question, what does it mean? In what way is death asleep? Then you compare Scripture to Scripture and you find that just like when you sleep, the dead know nothing. You read in that very day, his thoughts perish. No thoughts, unconscious. The meaning of the metaphor of sleep is shown to be consistent with the idea of sleep itself. It's all harmonious. The reason that the common error of going straight to heaven or hell is accepted is because they ignore the obvious meaning of the great body of texts interpreting death as life, sleep as alertness, knowing nothing as knowing more than ever before. And they take a few obscure texts that speak in metaphoric or parable language and they take them literally in contradiction to the great body of clear, unambiguous, plain texts that are spoken in clear language. This is the, the historical critical method in ex a clear example. You understand how we interpret the Bible changes everything. If we start, you know, just for convenience sake, making... Uh, a, a, a claim to a certain understanding thinking the end justifies the means because I want to get to that understanding but we use a wrong method to get there we're going to destroy all our pillars because the Sabbath is built on this method of understanding and hey you may start saying well Sunday Sabbath you know I mean there's a lot of justifying and rationalizing that can go on once you change the way you interpret the Bible that's why we have to keep it very very tight well, do you mind if we, you know, talk about the, the issue that the church is wrestling over in women's ordination? Okay, well, one of you is open to it, so if the rest of you want to leave, you can. <clears throat> so, let me just say something. I have no big burden. Like, I'm in soul winning. That's what I do. I'm in the Sabbath School Personal Ministries Department, and everything I do is about getting members involved in soul winning. Okay, so I don't have like this over, this is not like a big thing that I'm constantly harping on. But I, and I would, as long as I'm at it with, uh, you know, caveats, I might as well tell you that I have incredible friends and colleagues who view this on every side. Okay, so there's no like, you know, feel it, strong, hard feelings or anything like that in my mind. But I do have this sense that we, all of the microphones on this issue 
are speaking on one side. So what the church voted, there's not many people who are actually just looking at the Bible and saying, now why exactly might they have voted that way? Like from a biblical standpoint, not from an emotional standpoint or whatever, but just looking at the text themselves. Because that's what, in my mind, that's all I care about, really. Like, not that I don't care about people, but I, I know that at the end of the day, what's best for people is going to be what is the meaning of the text. So to me, I just want to wrestle over the text. And I am still fully open, like I'm wide open. If somebody were to show me ideas that, that you know, would change that concept, I'd be totally okay with it. But I feel like this illustrates some of the issues that I'm talking about. And I feel like uh, we are, many people, unaware that there is a biblical interpretation issue that's being addressed. And I'll be, uh, you know, remiss if I don't tell you that when the study of this issue was going on, because I served on the Theology of Ordination Study Committee at the General Conference that went on for, you know, a couple years, and we heard papers from all scholars on all sides of this, very well done papers on both sides, and we talked about it and wrestled over it and prayed over it and what have you. But when you look at the interpretation that was used to basically support the idea of the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, that particular uh, viewpoint was gotten to by using a slightly modified hermeneutic. Okay? And if you read in, for instance, the North American Division's report on this issue, they show the methods of Bible study document that the church voted on how we interpret the Bible in Rio de Janeiro, and they put a bracket over it and said, basically, there's an umbrella under which this allows. There's some wiggle room for this document. And yes, we've normally been historical grammatical. That's kind of the expression that I've been talking to you about. But there's also, under the same umbrella, there's another hermeneutic that we could safely use, and that's the historical uh, or principle-based historical cultural or something to that effect. It's a different name. And... I was, you know, I'm not here to debate that, except I think it's important to understand that it is a different way of approaching the Bible that we're talking about. So if we're going to do that, we need to be aware of it. Like, the people need to be aware of it. <laughs> we need to understand that we're using a different approach to how we're interpreting it in order to come to that conclusion. So let's talk about a text. Have you ever read where the Bible says uh, that women are not permitted to teach? Um, I'm going to ask Mark to come up and expound on that for a minute. No. <laughs> let's, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at it together. 1 Timothy is really the, you know, the most concentrated place where the biblical text needs to be evaluated, I believe. <clears throat> Probably not. <laughs> but... But yeah, thank you. I appreciate that you do, but I'm afraid of what will happen, and I already know that I'm going to be pushing into Mark's time. All right, First Timothy chapter 2, and let's look at verse 11. Have you found it? The Bible says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So let's talk about this uh, idea of 
silence for just a minute. Um, by the way, Ellen White was, is on record as telling a prominent woman in the early Adventist church, address the, the crowd whenever you can. So apparently, according to other inspired, and as Seventh-day Adventists, our hermeneutic, my belief is that when you validate the prophetic gift, which is inspired, then that then becomes part of the body of inspired evidence that you draw from to come to your conclusion. And here, Ellen White says that women were to, this particular woman was to address the crowd whenever she could. There's a place where clearly women are speaking in a public setting to men. Um, not only that, but we have scriptural examples. Um, we have, you know, Priscilla helping with Aquila, with teaching. You have the Apostle Paul actually telling the older women to teach the younger women. So is this a prohibition against all women teaching? No. How do we know that? We know it by taking the weight of the scriptural evidence. You look and find that other places in the Bible clearly, and in the spirit of prophecy, we see the example, an acceptable example, of women teaching. Furthermore, in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, the silence spoken of, the word there, hesukia, is a noun form of hesukios, which is an adjective that is in verse 2. I want you to see it in verse 2. It says, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and hesukios life. A peaceable life. In other words, you have these uh, kings, people who are in authority, and you were to live peaceably, not to be contending with those who were in this particular position of authority. From this type of reading, where you can look at the same type of Greek form and see that it's translated in slightly different ways, but it can help color what you understand so that you say, okay, now this can help harmonize with the other texts that help us to know that it wasn't a total prohibition, now we see that this is talking about a peaceable, non-contentious, not um, uh, opposing the structure of authority in the church. Notice that the text does not just say, I do not per permit a woman to teach. That's not what it says. I do not permit a woman to teach, or what? To have authority over men. Those two must be linked, because if you cut off the second half and just say, I do not permit a woman to teach, it violates what we already see in Scripture, right? So it can't be that. It has to be linked with this concept of authority, and when you understand silence as this peaceableness in terms of not trying to subvert authority, you recognize it's not a total, uh, you know, a total muffling of women. Now, we should note here something. We should note that we don't come to the conclusion that Paul was not giving an outright prohibition to, 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 to women uh, teaching. We don't do that by saying that Paul was a chauvinist and he was a product of his times and we're more advanced now. He was a product of his culture and we're therefore going to ignore that part of the Bible. Did you understand what I just said? I, you all were very, very quiet when I said that. 
In other words, you can't, we don't have the right to just impose on the Bible writers that they were corrupted. And that's why they wrote it the way they did. Oh, the, you know, and, and, and let's take another example. To me, when you start evaluating this text, when you do it from a, from a Miller's Rules way, comparing Scripture to Scripture and taking the obvious meaning of the text, a, a meaning starts to come out of it that makes sense. And when that meaning starts to come out, then you compare it with what you actually see in the practices of the church, and if it harmonizes, then you're doing pretty good. So for instance, if you keep reading in the text, it talks about, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, etc. Well, what is this authority? Well, wouldn't you know that in the same context, you come to chapter 3, it's set, chapter 2, is this prohibition is setting up chapter 3. Because what does chapter 3 say? This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, let's think about it for a second. It's talking about, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Then it says, if a man desires the position of elder or bishop, what type of position is that? The position of authority in the church. You understand? And in the very context, it's talking about that. And then it gives a couple of indicators that this role is one that is more designed for men. And that those are that it says the husband of one wife. This is not a prerequisite, or I'm sorry, this is not a characteristic or a qualification, I should say. It's not a qualification. It's a prerequisite. In other words, you know, it's sort of like uh, if, if my... Uh, daughter wanted to tell me the characteristics of the type of guy she wanted to marry, you know, she would not need to tell me, because I already know what orientation she is, she would not need to tell me, you know, I want him to be kind, I want him to make a good living, I want him to be a man, I want him to, she doesn't need that in there, because that is a prerequisite to what we're talking about. When you see the Apostle Paul writing, he doesn't need to list out the gender because it's the prerequisite to what he's saying. Must be the husband of one wife. Then he goes on to say, must rule his own house well. Now, this is a point that I think from a scripture with scripture, we need to bear carefully. There are many people who wrestle with the idea of the, uh, the uh, male role in the church. I understand that. But in the home, I, there's no debate, really. Because Ellen White has clearly written, uh, and I could give you reams of statements about how the father is the lawmaker in the home. He's the priest of the home. He has the sterner virtues, etc., etc., etc. So you understand that, and one of the qualifications is one who rules his own house well. Well, if the man is the priest of the home, and we believe that as Seventh-day Adventists from our belief in the inspired writings, then that has to play into the qualifications for the elder. You follow what I'm saying? 
So it's just, I'm not trying to be political or controversial. I'm just saying when you read the text and try to let the, make sense of the text, comparing Scripture to Scripture, not doing a superficial reading. A superficial reading would be to say, okay, Betty, Mary, you're never standing behind the pulpit again. Right? No, wait a minute, let's not be too quick because we have these other passages that talk about women teaching, that talk about women in these positions of leadership and other things. So we do want this, but there are certain aspects and you put all the pieces together and you begin to put together a picture that makes sense and is in harmony with what the Bible teaches. Then you start looking and saying, well, if this is true, well, maybe that explains why in the Old Testament the priests were always men. Maybe that explains why Jesus chose only men. Maybe that explains why we have no example of, an, of a female uh, apostle or elder in Scripture. Now what's happened is, and I'm just going to dive into the weeds here for a moment, because I have nine minutes plus the extra I'm going to take. <laughs> what happens is, you have these, um, you, you need to try to figure out a way and so, you know, it just doesn't make sense to people. So they look at Galatians 3.28. There's neither male nor female, you know, Jew nor Greek, etc. Beautiful text, but it says nothing about the role of the elder, the office, authority in the church, and nothing about that. That's not the context. You understand what I'm saying? And what has been done is they've looked at that text as having more prominence than the other text. That text is a forward-looking text, and even though, yes, there were some of these things that Paul was dealing with the culture of his age, that text is more inspired. They don't say it that way, but that's what it ends up being. And what you have is what we sometimes refer to as a canon within a canon. In other words, some texts that are more inspired than other texts, who chooses which texts are more inspired? The reader, right? Can't do that. All the texts have to harmonize with one another. Now, uh, I'm looking at all the things that I want to say, and I'm just making sure that I get to... I am not going to take the time to read it. I wanted to be totally transparent here, and I am being transparent. Okay, thank you. So, so in the text... Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. And then he says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he refers back to this order of creation. Now let me just say something to try to put the ladies at ease. I love my wife, okay? And believe that she should be treated with the utmost equality and respect. Furthermore, if I, could, if I had the time, I would take you through a, a multitude of statements in which Ellen White says that the roles of the woman, we may safely say, are more sacred than that of men. Now, by doing that, she not only elevates the woman, but she also clearly says that there are different roles. If she's saying one's more sacred than the other, then there's a difference there. She also says that women can do a work in families that is greater than that of men. She also says that the mother is uh, like the, or comparable to the king upon his throne. More important 
You had to say that, didn't you? I was trying to do a little higher critical change from the front here, and she caught me. Trying to make it say what I wanted it to say. No, let's think about it for a minute. If they're more important, if, if they can do a greater work than that of men, if they're more sacred, then what do, what's the point of men? No, I'm asking you a serious question. We need, to wrestle, we need to wrestle with this question. If those things are true, then maybe it could be that there is complementary equality here, but there is something important for men to do. And there is an importance to men stepping into leadership and being the protectors of their families, the protector of the church. There is something important to that. That is a God-given uh, purpose for men. When, when Ellen White describes Adam, she says he was the head of the human race and that he was the protector of Eve. This is something that we have to remember. It's a godly thing. It's not a... Now, of course, uh, sin messes everything up. And so we have abuse, and we have women being more mistreated than men, and all this, and we've got to solve, we've got to fix that. We should not have that in the church. And I always like to point out to men, Ellen White is very clear, that for you, men, to talk to your wives about your, uh, you know, priest of the home role does nothing to deserve any respect in the home. Okay? That's not how you get it. So, but that doesn't take away from this beautiful picture that God has given. Now, let me say something about what those who, uh, who were presenting the position of in favor of women's ordination at San Antonio session, their position, which was referred to as position number two, I have it all here and I was going to share a few points from it, but I'm just going to share this. This particular text in, second, in 1 Timothy, their, their explanation of the text is that this book is dealing with false teaching. And it, it does deal with a lot of false teaching. It shares some of that false teaching. It describes how the women were affected by this false teaching and describes that, uh, that in being affected by it, they were beginning to pass on false teaching. Let me show you 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, look at verse 1 Timothy 5.13. Speaking about these widows, it says, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. And what the position is taken is, is that there in Ephesus, where this is referring to, there was an issue with false teachers. These false teachers were influencing the women, and the women were then saying things that they ought not, passing on these false teachings. Now, read the text. When in verse 13, and besides they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not idle only idle, but also what? I mean, it's some high speculation to say that what they're doing is passing on the false teachings when all the text is says is that they're being gossips and busybodies. So then what the interpretation is that when you go to chapter 2 and it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, it says 
that's only referring to these women. In other words, the only reason he said that was because of these women who had heard from false teachers, and now there's this prohibition on the women in Ephesus teaching because of that. Now, this is an example of taking history and reconstructing a history in order to get the text to say something that is actually different from what the text is saying. Because when you read the text, it does not say, I do not permit Mary and Betty and Sally to teach. It doesn't specify certain women who were passing on. It, it's a, a prohibition to all women. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Right? Not only that, but the reason given is not false teaching, but for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's not a local cultural reason. He goes back to the, the order of Genesis, right? Now, if this is true, what is being proposed, then why wouldn't there also be a prohibition against all men teaching? And this is why I'm asking. Because in 1 Timothy, there are only two false teachers named. And guess what gender they are? They're both men. Now, if that's true, why does it say, I do not permit a man to teach? It doesn't pass the logic test. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't create it merely because, you know, there's some threads that are there. It's the same thing that happens when they talk about uh, a woman who was, uh, in, or, or a, uh, I'm sorry, an apostle who in their eyes was a woman named Junia. They say that, that name could be a male or a female. And, the, and when describing Junia, it says that Junia is of note among the apostles. So they say that's a evidence of a female apostle. Well, number one, it could mean an apostle or it could mean of note among the apostles. In other words, known by the apostles. Number two, the name could be either or man or a woman. So what you'll find a lot when people are interpreting this way is words like, it likely could be, suggests that, and as I read again before preparing here, through the position number two, there were a lot of likely could be's and suggests that's followed by, therefore, we conclude. And I just don't feel, I, I'm telling you, I'm wide open. I am totally open to uh, having a different understanding, but when I read the text and just use the same principles I've always used to come to the fact that the Sabbath is the seventh day, that the dead are asleep, you know, and that they're really dead, and that hell doesn't burn forever. When I use the same concept in how I am interpreting the Bible, that is very the, the idea of taking a role that is specifically says, not let's not have women, but I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, and then here is the role of the elder, the office of authority that is ordained, and, and, and it speaks about uh, must be a husband of one wife and rule his own house well, which speaks to the priest of the home. I, when I put all those together and then compare it to the fact that priests, elders, all the examples that we have in Scripture are all men, I mean, it's hard for me to swallow the idea when I say, but how is it that Jesus did not uh, choose one female apostle and uh, why would he not do that? Well, he, was, he knew that that would shake up the whatever. Well, he did lots of things to shake up what was happening, right? Why would he succumb to that on such an important issue? It doesn't really make sense. And uh, there's a whole uh, issue on 
slavery that if I had time, I would talk to you about. But um, I've got a great book if you want to know what it is that you can read on the issue of um, some people's view that this is the same type of thing as slavery. Totally not. Slavery is always bad, but the idea of, of males as priests of the home is not always bad. It can be a good relationship. So these are the types of, of things that happen when we are trying to figure out how to interpret a, a text in order to accommodate something that maybe we see in our, in our logic would be a good idea. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the issue of... One moment, and then I'm going to let you speak. I believe the issue of hermeneutics is... Or the issue that we're dealing with with San Antonio and now the unions that are going ahead and ordaining women and all that, the reason I don't believe it's just a distraction is because I believe that it is a gateway possibility that if we start allowing for different methods of interpreting the Bible, then we're going to see all kinds of things that could be acceptable. And that's the real concern, is hermeneutics will determine the future of the Adventist church. All right, thank you for being so attentive. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this time we've been able to spend in your word. And we know that we are imperfect vessels. We don't see things always the way we should. We give you full authority to change course and help us to know what the truth is whenever uh, you want to shine light on us individually or as a church. But Lord, help us to be faithful in the way that we study the Bible so that we have hearts that are right with you and are ready to follow the truth wherever it leads us. And now, Lord, we pray. We know what the future of Adventism is because it's in your hands. But we pray that we would be faithful and would be on your side, carrying your torch all the way until Jesus comes. Bless each one of us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.